I'm Jill Shaw, and this is Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today is Rick Weisbord, Faculty Director of Human Development and Psychology at Harvard Graduate School of Education. Rick is the director of the Making Caring Common Project, a national effort to make moral and social development priorities in child raising and to provide strategies to schools and parents for promoting caring, a commitment to justice, and other key moral, emotional, and social capacities. As part of the Making Caring Common Project, Rick leads Turning the Tide, a national effort to reform college admissions that engage almost 200 college admissions offices in promoting ethical engagement, reducing damaging achievement pressure in high school, and increasing equity and access for economically disadvantaged students. He's the author of two books, including The Parents We Mean to Be, How Well-Intentioned Adults Undermine Children's Moral and Emotional Development. Hi, Rick. It's so good to see you today. It's great to see you, Jill. So let's get right into this. You have a background in psychology and counseling, which I think gives you a very exacting lens on how adolescents must be feeling right now. You've got COVID, issues of isolation, issues of race and identity. How does this time feel to you? Does it feel different than other times when we think about adolescent behavior over generations? Yeah. No, I think it's, I mean, I think it's different for a number of reasons. I mean, one is that we are, you know, still not out of a pandemic, which I think has created all kinds of stresses on families. Um, But it's not just a pandemic. I think we're in a very anxious political time for lots of people. and We don't know how this is all going to involve. We are dealing with climate change, which is very much on adolescents' mind. There are very of core existential um, anxieties that I think we're all dealing with. I think teens are dealing with them, and I think their parents are dealing with them too. So I I do think there are these compounding anxieties. I also think, you know, teens have had such, you know, it varies a lot by race and class and culture, but such tenuous relationships to school over the last year and a half. Um, And, you know, the social isolation has been very hard for many teens, um, for teens who were already vulnerable or were kids who had social discomfort. I think the isolation has been a relief in some way, but it's going to make the reentry even harder. Mm. Um, so I think there are many different stories here going on with teens. I think the other thing that we don't really talk about enough is that teens were in a position, and this is all reversing now, but teens were in a position where they could endanger their parents. You know, there are a lot of teens who had parents who were um, were but were older, but also had underlying conditions. So you know, you go out and party and get stoned with your friends. Um, you can get your parent really sick, and your parent could even die. And so there are these underlying dynamics here that I think we haven't really talked enough about that are at play as well. Now, what's been reversed for younger kids who have not gotten vaccinated is now parents are worried about socializing because they're worried about infecting their kids. So so that's um, a whole other dynamic, but. Lots of complicated dynamics at play here for teens. Right. And it's like we're learning in with hindsight. You know, we were talking right before this podcast about how, you know, this is a war that we're waging where the enemy, we can't see it. And and the way you're describing it, it's kind of hiding inside of all of us, which creates this very, I think, trepidatious relationship with each other. And Yeah, no, that no, that's that's right. And you know, teens um are both you know they're vacillating wildly right between wanting to be close to their parents wanting to be separate from their parents 
And the regulating of closest and distance in adolescence is so tricky anyway. And that's all been, um, been really upended because, you know, a lot of teens have been forced to spend much more time at home. Um, they don't, you know, you can't regulate boundaries in the same way that right. you usually yeah. Right, right. It does seem like it used to be a lot easier. Not that one would have ever thought this as a parent when you only had to worry about them driving a car or who they were meeting up with or what yeah. they were doing. But now you have to just worry about whether or not they're also being exposed to something that... Whether they're going to be exposed and whether they're going to expose other people. Right, right. Yeah. In an age that can be very egocentric. So, yeah. So, and your work included over the past year a, a study where you looked at loneliness. You had done a study on loneliness um, back in 2019 where you um, reported that three out of every five people reported that they felt lonely, and then the COVID pandemic has only worsened this crisis. Uh, you found that 73% of respondents felt at least occasionally lonely. And what I thought was interesting as I was reading that study is that loneliness, the way that you define it, it's not just not being with other people. It's it's really about whether or not the relationship that you have with anyone that you are associated with is giving you what you expect it to give to you. Exactly. Yeah. And we have done another loneliness study more recently, and loneliness is way down, which is which is good to hear. Oh, I that's mean, good to hear. You know, since the middle of the pandemic, and I think through the summer, people are outside more, and and so there are more people that are um, congregating, and there's less loneliness. But loneliness is still epidemic. I mean, loneliness—you know—about one in five Americans are reporting substantial loneliness, and um, and it's the and young adults, 18 to 25 year olds, are the highest rates, higher than the elderly, significantly higher than the elderly. So, you know, we talk about this a lot among the elder about the we worry about the elderly a lot, as as we should. But the the group that is feeling most lonely is young people. And I think it is because of exactly what you just said. I think it is this disparity between the kinds of social relationships you think you should have and the kind of relationships you do have, the kind of relationships you aspire to have and the kind of relationships that you do have. And, and it's in that discrepancy that people feel loneliness. I think one of the tricky things about the word, though, is that we're using loneliness to describe a variety of emotional states. So if you're a parent who has spent all day with a two-year-old and you're totally wiped out and drained, and you just need some adult to yeah. attend to you or affirm you in some way, you may feel a kind of loneliness. But that's really different than the loneliness that a teenager might feel when they go on social media and they see all their friends partying and um, in groups and looking like they're having a blast and and feeling like I'm, I'm, a, I'm home alone or I have two friends and these people have more friends or have mm -hmm. uh, are enjoying each other a lot more than I'm enjoying my friends. That's a kind of relative deprivation that can feel like loneliness too, but very different from the parents. So, you know, I think it's important to be, um, to be pretty fine grained and specific about what types of loneliness people are experiencing. So let's talk a little bit about that though, because I think this notion that our kids now are in an online world as well as an offline world where the rest of us existed primarily in an offline world for for the bulk of our lives and the fact that you know all of our kids split their time in these virtual worlds as well as these real worlds it, does that change how do how do these virtual worlds impact 
human psychology? And do we get the same things from them as humans when we're interacting online as we do offline? Has Because I can imagine it's hard to help coach kids on what they should expect out of relationships when we might, we, we probably don't know as much as we should know about what it's like to have an online relationship versus an offline yeah. relationship. Yeah. No, I think you put it very well. I don't think we do know enough about what's going on online. I mean, there are people who are studying this. I, I'm not one of them, but there are people like Sherry Turkle and others who have really dug more deeply into this question about on, online relationships. I will say a couple of things, and we have done some research, some survey data about this. One is that I, I think we have a tendency to be entirely negative about teens' social media life, but for a lot of kids, it's been really positive, and that comes out in our data. Mm -hmm. They make friends that they would not otherwise have made. They make friends with people who are different from them that they would never have made. We live in very segregated environments, so that kids are making friends with kids that are different from them is especially important. Um, for kids who have felt ostracized or like they don't belong, LGBTQIA kids, for example, they often find other LGBTQIA kids online who are kindred spirits and who they form important bonds with. And so I think the social media world cuts many different ways. Um, I do think that, you know, the likes phenomena has been a disaster. You know, it's it so plays into kids feeling like I'm a loser or I'm deficient or right. I'm unpopular. Yeah. And I think in terms of loneliness, it does, it can really magnify loneliness because of the amount of self-display and self-curation that goes on um, in social media, where the way people present themselves doesn't really reflect the reality of their lives. But for somebody who is observing, it, it looks like everybody else is having a great time right. <laughs> and is having fun with people. And I'm not. And, and that can be brutal. It's interesting, right? Because it's like we un inherently understand the dynamics of marketing and and we use those, you know, to great to some degree of success on social media. And yet we don't spend any time teaching kids about the dynamics of marketing. And so, it, you know, it makes them less discerning in, when they look at it, it's a great yeah, it, it's a great point. And it would be a great thing to be teaching kids to be critical consumers of, of, of social media and, you know, and to know they're being manipulated. I was reading about a study that you did where you looked at caring versus happiness versus achievement and you asked kids to rank which was most important. And, and in that study, for them, they believed achievement was most important. Yeah, either achievement or happiness. Or I mean, happiness. We've, done, we've done a number of different studies. So, you know, we've done surveys at this point with probably 50,000 teens um, around the country um, over the last five or six years. And we've asked them versions of the question you just described. Um, and we also ask them, how do you imagine your parents would rank these values, for, you know, in, right. in, in raising you? How do you imagine your teachers would rank these values in educating you? And you know, as you said, you know, one of the things that we find is that we ask kids to rank caring, happiness, and achievement. Caring comes in last, and about 80% of kids rank either happiness or achievement as more important than caring. And I think it's important to pause and consider that for a minute because I think the degree to which we have elevated achievement and happiness, happiness especially, mm. is the primary goals of child raising and demoted or marginalized concern for other people and the common good may be unprecedented in our history. And I think it's dangerous. And I think 
when you look at the problems in the world today, the fragmentation and the hyper-individualism and the focus on self-advancement, you know, those, those are puzzles with many pieces, but one piece is, I think, that in our child raising, we have not elevated, as other generations have, concern for other people and concern for the common good. I'll just say one other thing about it, which is we ask parents and educators, what's most important to you and your parenting and your educating, caring, happiness, and achievement? They say caring. Really? <laughs> yeah. And then, then when we ask kids, what's most important to your parents? Um, they say achievement. Uh, um, achievement, happiness, caring comes in third. They're even more likely to think that their parents prioritize achievement and happiness than they prioritize achievement and happiness. So there's this big disconnect between what parents and teachers are espousing. Similarly with teachers, that kids say, and I understand this, kids say by large majorities, the teachers are more concerned with their academic achievement, with students' academic achievement than with caring, which I understand. But the interesting thing is when you ask teachers what's most, most important to you in educating, they don't say academic achievement. They say that, you know, kids are good people. So, but what is, so what's going on here then? Because are kids more discerning? I mean, for sure we incentivize most teachers in this country around achievement. And are kids just picking up on that? I think it's exactly right. I just think it's in the air. It's in the water. And, you know, when I think about my own, you know, raising my kids, and this is part of the reason I got interested in this topic, because I saw it in my own parenting. But, you know, I sometimes didn't require my kids to reach out to a friendless kid on a playground or to write thank you notes because mm -hmm. I didn't want them to experience, you know, do something they didn't want to do. Yeah. And in all those subtle ways, you know, I'm prioritizing their happiness over their caring for other people. Hmm. A lot of conversation in schools and in, and in homes and in our home, um, you know, about grades and about achievement, and about where you're going to college. Not a lot of conversation about sometimes about concern for other people or what's going on with other people in the world or where are other people, where are your friends, how are your friends doing and how are they, you know, in their applications to college. I was interviewing a couple and they were deciding whether to let their, their daughter quit the soccer team. And the mother says, let her quit. She's not having any fun. And the father says, but she's a really good soccer player and it's going to be important for her college application. And I realized at one point that neither of them asked does she have any responsibility for the team. And, you know, I was talking to my wife a few weeks later and, and our daughter wanted to quit a dance group she was in. And I said, let her quit. She's not having any fun. And my wife said something snarky like, excuse me, Mr. Moral Development, we're not going <laughs> to just let her quit the dance group. And my point is, like, in all these subtle ways, we are conveying that our kids' happiness or their, their achievement are more important than their responsibilities to other people and to their communities, to their, um, to their teams, to their schools as communities, to their neighborhoods as communities. And so I, I think it's in all these subtle in-the-water ways that um, explain this disconnect. But part of what you worry about also is that this could lead to the demise of democracy, that caring was a thread that kind of was sewn through the development of this country, and that it's something that democracy a lot relies on, is that we care as much about one another as we do about ourselves. Is that right? Well, I, I guess I would say two things. One is that, you know, in terms of who we care for, it really shifted a lot in one sense. You know, I'll just give you one example. I mean, 
In terms of carrying across race and religion, you know, we're doing much better, I think, as a country than we've mm-hmm. done in the past. And, you know, in the 1960s, um, parents didn't want their kids, by and large, to marry somebody. You know, there's a lot of resistance to your kids marrying somebody from a different religion and marrying somebody from a different race. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, I think it's about 40%, married somebody from a different political party. We asked the question on the survey today, would you prefer your kids, not would you prefer, just about your level of comfort with your child marrying somebody from a different religion, a different race, different political party, uh, marrying some, being in a gay relationship. And large majorities of people are fine with their, with their kids marrying somebody of a different race and religion. Um, large majorities of Democrats and most Republicans were, were comfortable with their kids marrying um, somebody of the same sex. But significant majorities of people were not at all fine with their kid marrying somebody from a different political party. Really? I mean, that's what's changed. Yeah. Is that just be, is that to be because of the recent what's been going on in this country for the past couple of I think years? It's what's been going on in the country? I think that you know this is where uh, I mean we still have lots of different divides, but this is a huge divide in our country right yeah, now. Yeah. Right. Um, and so. In terms of caring for others, I think the question we want to be asking is, you know, one question we want to ask is how much do we care for other people? But the other question is, you know, almost everybody cares for somebody quite a lot. The other question we want to ask is who do we care for and do we care for people who are different from us? And at this moment, I think, you know, a huge question we should be asking ourselves, are we engaging in these hard forms of caring? Are we caring for people who are different from us um, in political parties, for example, like when you think about anti-vaxxers um, in, in our community and, you know, Cambridge and liberal communities, you know, I think a lot of people in liberal communities don't have compassion for anti-vaxxers or don't care about anti-vaxxers. Talk to us a little bit about your work at Making Caring Common, because I it, it just leads me to wonder, should we be letting the younger generation lead more, that we're a little bit behind because we don't, we never did explore the nuances. We never had to, we never forced ourselves to understand how deeply we're different, right? And and so, but we did, but we were raised more in maybe a culture of caring, but maybe, you know, it's, it, what are the right tools for helping kids move towards, back towards caring for one another, understanding the importance of that, um, maybe a little bit raging against this at least perceived focus that they think we have on their achievement and back towards like some of these softer, more important issues. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And I think you'll agree with me that, you know, this is, um, we call these things soft and they're not. It came out of my mouth and I was like, that's not the word I want to use. But (laughs) no, no, no. everybody, I mean, I I use the word too, but you know, I'm trying to, um, I think these skills are so in some ways, um, tough to develop. And they're also, um, they're just so core. Yeah. Uh, So I guess I was, I would say a couple of things, you know, one is that I think that in homes and schools and this, May, this sounds obvious, but may sound up to you. It doesn't. It's not obvious in practice. We may have to make caring for other people a priority. And and you know we mm-hmm. you know, rather than saying, 
the most important thing to me is you're happy. We should be saying to our kids, the most important thing is that you're kind and that, you know, you yeah. care about people who are different from you. You know, Henry James allegedly said on his deathbed, there are only three things that are important in life. The first is to be kind, the second is to be kind, and the third is to be kind. Um, Tolstoy wrote about, wrote about kindness, too, and the centrality of kindness. The, um, and so I think kindness, you know, getting back to kindness, and particularly kindness for people who are different from you, is crucial. Because when you appreciate people who are different from you and the multitude of people who are different from you, that's the foundation of justice. Right. When, you know, when you're able to take the perspective and value a wide range of people who are different from you. And that's really what I think we should be focusing on with our kids. And I think there are a number of things we can do to help develop it. You know, we can model it. We can talk about problems in the world and the problems that are people that are different from us. You know, Making Care in Common has lots of activities that are helping to, you know, kids develop the skills to appreciate people who are different from them. Things like listening, reading facial expressions, being able to reflect back understanding. We can bring in vibrant images of different cultures and communities into our homes, into our schools. And that's a way kids can come to value people who are different from them. So I think there are a number of pathways for, you know, developing this capacity in kids. And as adults, you know, I hope we are coming to realize, I feel like we're making some movement in this direction. As you said, if we don't do this, we may not survive as a democracy and as a country. Well, it's um, so important, right, yeah. that we're not, you know, it, it's interesting, right, because I, I think we still have it underlying in this country. I mean, when I mean, you remember the Boston bombing and immediately, you know, the entire, all of Massachusetts and Boston and really the country leaned in yeah. to support one another. And I think we have it in us. I think this is a very weird time because... COVID, we didn't all lean in to support one another. We didn't recognize that the enemy was this virus. And so we made enemies out of each other. And so it, we've created this very caustic situation. But to your point, we need to peel our way back out of it. And and part of what you're doing is supporting schools and teachers and parents in helping kids yeah. move back towards yeah. caring. And No, that's right. And, and caring when it's hard, you know, so... Um, you know, in our data, a lot of people care in the sense that they value caring in themselves. They're engaged in some form of helping out neighbors or volunteering or expressing gratitude. Mm -hmm. But they're much harder forms of caring that have to do with really understanding your biases and managing your biases, um, extending yourself to people who are lonely and struggling, um, you know, having compassion when other people make mistakes. I mean, this is one of the reasons I mentioned the anti-vaxxers, because even, if, you know, when people are deeply misinformed, it doesn't mean we shouldn't have compassion for them. Right. These are the harder forms of caring. And in schools, one of the things we're trying to do is to help kids care about people who don't share their, you know, engage people constructively who don't share their political views. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my kids went to the Cambridge Public Schools, and I don't think they ever heard a solid case for Republican political position. And... I think there are many parts of the country where that are entirely Republican, where nobody ever hears a solid case for a Democratic political position. Yeah. And I think we have to, you know, create school environments at homes where people understand their each other's positions better and are able to engage those positions. And I just want to be very clear, and I'm not saying that we should give up on our fundamental beliefs. We shouldn't 
get into a conversation with somebody that we think is racist and suggest it's okay to be racist or sexist or homophobic. But we should be able to get into a conversation with them. Right. And, Understand uh, where it's coming from. Where it's coming from yeah. and um, and to be tactical about how to respond to it. Right. Yeah. No, so this is also ties into the mentoring work that you're doing with schools and I guess helping to make sure that schools know that there is an adult or a mentor involved in every child's life. And that's very important. It ties back to loneliness. It ties back to the fundamentals of making sure that that child feels cared for and loved and can and can share those things with others as well. Can you talk a little bit about why mentoring is so important and the mapping work that you do with schools? Yeah, and, and you just sort of pointed to it. I mean, one of the things that, um, you know, is so at the core of developing children's capacity to care is is being cared for. I yeah. mean, it's being cared for by your parents, but it's also being cared for by others, by your peers and by other adults who really are invested in your life, especially if you have difficult relationships with your parents to have adults who are really invested in your life. And, um, you know, and to some degree are outside your family system, which may be, um, which may be difficult for you in, in a variety of respects. So, you know, we have now a mountain of literature that shows that mentoring is really critical to kids. Um, what I'm excited about and excited about in the project that we're doing together is that we're able to, to be intentional and proactive and systematic about it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, in, in, the, in the relationship mapping we do, we ask all the adults to put, you know, essentially put a star next to every kid they have a good relationship with in the school building. And one of the things you see is a bunch of kids have a lot of stars and some kids have no stars. And that becomes the map. How do we make sure that every adult has a connection to one of those kids? What we want to embark on now in our collaboration, you know, is around that, but also about reverse relationship mapping. Where we're asking students to identify those adults they think they have trust and caring relationships with. And I think it's going to be really interesting and useful to find out where the matches are and where the disconnects. Adults may feel like they're connected to some kids, but those kids don't feel connected to those adults and, and vice versa. So we'll get a much richer picture, I think, of what is actually going on. But one of the, the other thing I'm excited about with, about reverse relationship mapping is if you were to ask the question, you know, whether you want to support kids around their mental health or support them around their post-secondary planning. Often we do force matches where we put a kid in contact with a big brother or somebody, um, you know, based on certain characteristics, we match them. Mm -hmm. What we're proposing to do is something quite different, which is ask kids to identify those people outside their family, those adults that are really important to them. The match has already been created. Yeah. And then you're just supporting those adults with information about post-secondary planning or mental health or other areas is you already know they have influence on that kid. So that's what, um, I mean, among other things, that's one of the aspects of this that I'm very excited about. And on the other side of this, you're working with colleges and universities to try to help them diversify admissions. And also think about which I think is so interesting and so right on, how to diversify the way that they deliver content. I had read something that you'd written that's where you posed the question, why do these exclusive schools hang their hat on exclusivity at this point, right, where everything is open? Why isn't it more important to them that this highly valuable content is distributed as widely as possible? 
Well, that's, yeah. So, you know, not right now, the metric is, um, you know, colleges get a lot of attention for how few people they accept. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, they're getting a lot of attention and some, some of them are parading. We rejected 93% of our applicants, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which is not a good thing to parade. It feels very negative. And, and we're trying to change the metric. I mean, we would love if colleges instead, selective colleges, instead of bragging about how few people you educated, you how few people you admitted, you bragged about how many people you educated and you got attention for how many people you educated. Because that's and, really that's really the key, right? And you have you're, if we're looking at, for sure, America has some of the best universities and colleges in the world, which means we have some of the best content creators just in those establishments and then you know yeah. beyond that of course as well and and then we have but we have this huge mismatch in terms of public school districts and I know you've done a lot of work in particular with Boston public schools but public school districts and their failure to create great academic opportunities for kids and part of the intervention that you're working on is is mentoring and helping kids have secure relationships that then foster this desire to go on to a to a secondary education but there are to a university or college education but at the same time we should be broadening access there's no reason to not take advantage you know and, and make it multifold the the great content and delivery systems that we have yeah no i think there are two things that in terms of access that are really important i mean i mean there are many things but two things that we're focused on one is just increasing the number you know High school students are low-income students, underrepresented students are undermatching, meaning they're not um, tending to go, many of them are not going to colleges that are more rigorous where they're able to do high-quality work. So increasing the number of low-income students and underrepresented students who apply to more rigorous colleges mm -hmm. that, have strong, that have strong track records of graduating students, I want to emphasize that. Mm -hmm is is really important is increasing the pool getting college admissions officers to capture those students strengths is also very important because sometimes those are students who may not do well on the sat and don't have access to sat tutoring or prep but they have many other skills 21st century skills critical thinking perspective taking capacities mm -hmm. social awareness i mean other a whole range of skills that we're not capturing often in the admissions process. They're important to capture. But the third thing is what you said, which is that, you know, we can reimagine, it's really the time to reimagine their university. There's so many different ways to educate students less expensively. Yeah. You know, one way is fully online, but that's hard going for a lot of students. Sure. But you can imagine a more versatile university that, um, you know, for a semester or a year, you can do public service and take courses online, asynchronous, which are much less expensive. Mm -hmm. You can live at home or you can live in a less expensive part of the country or the world. You can save a lot of money and you can do a lot of good and you can get a tuition break. Um, you can do an internship at Google for a year and make money and um, and take courses, you know, take a couple of courses asynchronously at, at much less cost. So my, my point being that now that we have these online capacities, now that we have places like Verto, where you can do a year abroad much less expensively. 
um, there are more affordable ways to go through colleges and there are ways that colleges can expand their undergraduate populations um, by making a thoughtful use of remote learning and other technologies. And, and who do you think is being more innovative? I would imagine it's on the college and university side. They are starting to play around with these things and the onus is on our K through 12 system to keep up and know that all of these opportunities are there for our students? Yeah, both college opportunities and non-college pathways, right? Yeah. Alternative pathways for students. And um, and yeah, no, this is another area that, uh, you know, we need to do a lot of work in a lot of these areas. I, you know, um, we had a lot of high schools, <clears throat> you know, the ratio of counselors to students is an, an average in the country is something like 550 to one. But in our big urban areas, it's more like, eight or 900 to one. Hmm. Um, in suburban schools and you know, independent schools, it, I don't know, maybe 50 to one or 60 to one. So yeah. we have a huge information problem too, that high school students um, in, in big urban areas, especially, but also you know, in rural areas too, um, aren't getting good information about what colleges they can get into, what colleges are gonna, they're gonna have a strong track record of graduating students, placing students in jobs. So there's a big information part of this as well, right? And do, how do you and how do you think about um, students mentoring other students? I, I feel like some of that knowledge is going to be mess, best accessed and best proliferated by the students themselves rather than adults. In yeah, certain situations. no, I think. I mean, one of the things that you know the research seems to show, and it's certainly been in my experience, is that. A lot of kids are more likely to, to on a whole variety of issues, they're much more likely to, to listen to an older peer, not a peer, an older kid. Yeah, yeah. Than, than an adult. And so I think your thought is exactly right, is that if there are ways that we can elevate kids to mentor younger kids, I shouldn't call them kids, elevate young, young people to mentor younger kids, it can be very powerful. Yeah. yeah. So, so what do you think the call to actions are for, you know, kind of the next year or so as we're still grappling with COVID, but kids are back in school face to face, do things keep getting better and what should adults be doing, leaning in to do, what should parents be doing, what should teachers and administrators be thinking about doing to really help our kids I think evolve into the next leaders of yeah. our democracy in our country. Yes, I think, <clears throat> I guess I would em emphasize a couple of things. One is that I, I think the relationship building is at the beginning of the year and the next, you know, this month, the next month is absolutely cr crucial. We just have a lot of untethered, disconnected kids out there mm -hmm. and making sure those kids are well connected to the school community, connected to adults, connected to other kids that is a strong inclusive school community I, I would really emphasize that for now and i and you know the way that kids learn to be caring primarily is in caring relationships i mean it's not curriculum it's when they experience um a school community or, or a neighborhood and their families as caring and inclusive you know yeah. that the expectation is in this community that we're going to care for everybody um, you know, regardless of gender, race, class, sexual orientation, you know, everybody is an equal member of this community and belongs. So I think that uh, that deep work is really at the heart of the matter. 
But we also live in this extraordinary moment, right, where kids are, um, there's so much going on in the world that has implications for us and our collective, implications for our collective fate. You've mentioned the democracy. That is that is one thing. We, you know, global warming. What's going to happen to our planet right. is, is another thing. Um, you know, this is related to democracy, but what's going on with voter suppression in the country right now? There are all kinds of issues that young people can be involved with right now. It would be great for them to be involved with. There are needs generated by the pandemic for tutoring and um, for contact tracing and for a number of other things. We should be engaging kids in service, you know, um, across the country and national service um, in diverse groups, politically diverse groups, racially and ethnically and economically diverse groups. All these things, you know, this should be a year where we really um, expect and support kids to be engaged with the world. Um, And, and, you know, my experience is that they really value it. They really want to do it. And it can also get them out of some of the more irritating egocentric concerns that they get can get consumed by you know it's interesting you're just making me think there's been a lot of discussion over the past probably at least five or ten years about a national service requirement for meaning any type of service not just armed forces service but you know service in um uh, out in the community in some way is this the time for it it's so interesting because there's so much funding available right now right and we flooded the school public school system with all of this ESSER funding um, to help support kids with the ramifications of COVID-19. But here we're talking about something that, you know, we could have used that funding for. My understanding is that funding, you know, it's very loose in terms of what, how schools are required to spend it. And actually they are having a hard time really knowing how to spend it or they want to densely spend it on mental health care, but there aren't enough providers in this country for the deep need that we have right now. Should we be thinking about No, I think what you're saying is really important. I mean, I will say that, you know, of course we need to really work to get mental health, to strengthen our mental health provider system. Totally. Especially in rural areas where there's just very little mental health support for kids. Um, But I also think when you create strong, engaged, inclusive communities where kids feel well-connected and they're engaged in service and other activities that are meaningful to them, it can partly prevent and mitigate a whole range of mental health problems as well. I Mm -hmm. mean, so I think it serves a number of goals simultaneously. Um, And so I think this is a wonderful moment for kids to be engaged in service. I I don't understand well the politics of national service and why it's not been more. I think it's funding. I think everyone's scratching their heads trying to figure out how to fund it, but we've we've invented this great way of printing lots of money. So yeah. I feel like we figured it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's my understanding too. Yeah. I agree with you. But, so we um, got it. So as we end the show, what is the one piece of advice you'd give to all of us, all of us adults in the world, as we walk through the world, or we sit at our dining room table at night, or we are leading a class with kids, what's the one thing we should be thinking more about and, and lead it, you know, kind of giving intentionality to, to help shift the world towards um, caring? Yeah, so it's a, it's a wonderful question. I think that um, what I would emphasize is this capacity to care across difference. Um, because I think when 
when young people have a, the capacity to care for people who are different from them in race, class, gender, sexual orientation, political ideology, religious ideology, if you develop that capacity, we are going to have a functioning democracy. We are going to have um, a world where we are going to have much less polarization and strife than we currently do now. Um, and so I think we're off course. You know, I think our schools, our religious institutions, our universities used to be about primarily around raising kids who are going to be good citizens. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about academic achievement in, in their founding of our schools or universities. And I think we have to think about how do we put front and center again, caring for other people and caring for people who are different from you. Like, it's got to be front and center in our schools and our universities. If we're not going to become more religious, we have to think about how to reproduce some aspects of religion that we're, we're, are great and that encourage people to care, you know, some aspects that are great and encourage people to care for people who are different from them. Because we've really abandoned this mission and we got to get back to it. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for talking to me today. This has been it's great. Been, it's been such a pleasure. And uh, I'll hope, I hope we can continue the conversation I, other way. We absolutely will be. Great. Thanks, Rick. Great. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Rick Weisbord of Making Caring Common. His work has given us a lot to think about regarding perception versus reality when it comes to expectations around achievement versus happiness versus caring, as well as some great advice on how to move our own actions back to supporting caring as a critically important skill that we all need to build and develop for the success of the next generation and for our country. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.